everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Um, special edition and uh, retired uh, retired Navy SEAL Captain. Uh, nice to meet you, um, Frank. I'll turn this over to you since. Uh, um, I think you go back some ways with with uh, Mr. Dejanet. Yeah, so Frank Forza here, Noah Green. Thank you so much. We're here with our special guest today, Tom Dejarnet, <coughs> and I, I couldn't be more thrilled to have Tom on. Tom is a uh, 26 years in the Navy SEAL. He had different titles: Deputy Commander, Chief Staff Officer. The one he's most proud of is Commanding Officer. 26 years is a long time, and the reason we that I wanted to have Tom on is that I think that there's so much, I have so much respect and admiration for what the SEALs go through, what they represent, their code, and to have someone like Tom to be able to pick his brain on how to be mentally tougher, how to be more resilient, how to be more prepared, all of these lessons that the SEALs have they apply to you if you're a jiu-jitsu athlete, if you're a wrestler, if you're a combat sports athlete, if you're anybody just trying to have more success in, your, in, in life, right, on the mats, off the mats. This is the kind of brain I love to pick. So, Tom DeJarnet, welcome to the Everyman BJJ Podcast. It's so, so great to have you, man. Hey, thanks, Frank. Thanks very much. Noah, it's uh, really good to meet you for the first time uh, on here, and, you know, I'm very proud and thankful for your service in the Marine Corps. So, you know, it's great brothers in arms. I appreciate that. And Frank, uh, you know, the friendship that we've, we've struck up over the the last, last few months has been uh, rewarding and enriching for me as well. I think that, you know, we, we do, like you said, we share a lot of similarities. Uh, Our mindset is very similar. Um, And, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, as we continue to explore how we interact with each other you know it's interesting to figure out the links that we had all the way from childhood all the way up through adulthood the links between your you know fantastic international jiu-jitsu championship record you know and seal teams you know so perform working at a high level as a youngster and then growing up and continuing that and dealing with the adversity and you know Matt, not mastering maybe, but, you know, working on resiliency and grit along the way, you know, to keep that edge as long as possible, you know, and it's, it's been really rewarding and enriching for me to learn from you over the last, you know, few months. And uh, I hope we get to keep doing it. I really appreciate that, Tom. You know, I have, I hold you in really high regard. We have a mutual friend that, that introduced us and, and Tom and I have been fast friends because there, there are a lot of similarities. I'd love to pick his brain. He loves to pick my brain on some of the creative stuff. Tom, honestly, I got to say this. Of anybody I've met on a strategic level in terms of strategy, devising, Tom DeJarnette is second to none. I I mean, when it comes to, like, preparing and strategy and questions and asking the right questions just to make sure you're prepared, second to none. I mean, when Tom DeJarnette sends you a list of questions, it's... It is so detailed and so exhaustive. So I love that about you. One thing that Tom and I do, too, and we're going to talk about this today, Tom, we like to obsess over childhood, right? I always say the making of blank, the making of a Tom D. Jarnett. And since you and I talk a lot about childhood and the 
and childhood and how that sort of sit, plants the seeds for what people become later in life and even some of these seals. Tell us about how do you become a seal? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, growing up Tom D. Jarnett, and what seeds were kind of planted in those early years that, that led you to be the kind of stuff that a seal is made of? Oh, that's a, that's a fun question for sure. Cause you know, you're right. We do talk a lot about our childhood because I think we like picking it apart because I, I think that, you know, we fundamentally think that something happened in our childhood that, you know, made us who we are. I, I, I believe that. And I think you believe that. And so that is a fun question to start with for sure. Um, and I got, and I, and it's fun because I had such a wonderful childhood. I mean, I really did. I, I, you know, my, and I'm laughing a little bit because there's a dichotomy to my childhood as well. Um, so my mother, um, she was the type of mom who, you know, both my parents led by example. Uh, my mom was a 12th grade English teacher and she was out the door <clears throat> before me and my dad every morning. Um, she took me to all my practices. Um, she believed in me 100%, even when I was wrong. She was the, the type of mom who always supported you and always pushed you to go, you know, dream big and go get it. Right. And she supported that, uh, by her actions, uh, and her emotions in, in every which way. And so she was really good for me in that, in that regard. And, and, you know, and then, then you got my dad and, you know, my dad was, um, he was an electrical engineer, marketing executive at at and He was also a Colonel in the air force and, he uh, flew A-26s in Korea, and he loved the Air Force so much that when he had to retire, uh, he ended up joining the National Guard and the Army as an E-7. So, you know, so that's interest. That's interesting. I think Noah Noah can appreciate that, right? So he goes from being a colonel, full bird colonel, to an E-7 simply because he loved, you know, the brotherhood of the military. And he loved hanging around those guys. He loved the discipline. And he loved the attention to detail, and so. You know, he and so he kind of held me accountable. Right. He didn't let me, you know, get get away with anything. And, you know, you know, my actions, you know, you paid the price for anything that you did wrong. Uh, you know, you, you you paid a heavy price for it. And so <clears throat> I'm not sure that, you know, I listened or learned uh, early on. I'm sure I fought that early on, but I think it paid off, you know, later on in life. Um and so, you know, he was he was really fair, but he was very strict um, along the way. And, you know, like I can remember, you know, one story in particular is, you know, when I was a kid playing one of my first baseball seasons, I, he gave me a welder's glove. <clears throat> that was my glove. And I was like, well, Dad, you know, this this isn't what everybody else has got. He goes, yeah, but it doesn't matter. You know, they're not hitting the ball hard and you can stop the ball. And, you know, regardless of the fundamentals of, you know, catching it in your webbing and, you know, all that stuff, you know, it is really embarrassing, right? And I still got the team picture with the with the welder's glove up here, you know. But, but you know, and and you know, at the time it was it was really embarrassing. But you know, as I think back on it, you know, I'm so proud of that picture now. You know, the the that's that's an early lesson in resiliency right there. You know, like hey, don't let the welder's glove get to you. So, you know, that's kind of the the dichotomy of my of my parents. You know, and you know, my thing, although baseball, the welder's glove story is a is a uh, you know good case to talk about my dad. My thing was swimming, right? And so, um, you know, much like you, Frank, I think you know you were involved in football and you excelled in football and excelled in martial arts at an early age. And 
so I quickly found a home in swimming and, you know, very early on, um, you know, I, I had a national record uh, as an eight-year-old and, you know, I was ranked in multiple events all the way through high school and, and, and into college. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, as, as talented as I was in swimming, um, I didn't carry over really anywhere else in the rest of my life. I got in trouble in school. Um, you know, I had a hard time, frankly, making friends um, early on. And so I think that, you know, that kind of put a chip on my shoulder. Right. And, 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 you know, and I've always thought that, you know, you know, I've always reflected, you know, we always reflect on the big decisions in life and were they good and, you know, were they the right thing to do? And <clears throat> so obviously I've always thought, you know, was it good to go in the seals? And it's fun. It's a resounding yes, but it's like, why did I do that? And I think more than anything else is because I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I had something to prove to myself, something to prove to everybody else. And, you know, frankly, so much so that when I was in the SEALs for 25 years, 26 years, um, I would talk to other SEALs, my friends, and uh, about this. And come to find out, a lot of those guys had chips on their shoulder. And so I, I think that, you know, having that chip on your shoulder um, allows us to, you know, push beyond what's comfortable, push beyond what's normal, uh, push and maintain in that high performer realm because with that chip on your shoulder also, you know, makes you work harder, makes you have attention to detail. It makes you circle back. It makes you, cause you, you know, you don't want to let yourself down and you don't want to let your teammates down. And so, you know, you go above and beyond because that chips on your shoulder. And I think it's good having that on there. And, you know, I think that that started with my weird childhood where I was, you know, really good at one thing, but the rest of my life wasn't, wasn't really put together that well. And, you know, I think that it manifested itself in my adult life and that's how I ended up being a seal. Now, Tom, um, and I just learned some stuff <clears throat> and I talk a lot, but I just learned quite a bit in there. And by the way, Tom, <laughs> you were, you, you, we were a scholarship athlete, university of South Carolina. You were all American, I think, right? Swimmer down there, right? I was, it was a relay, but I still count it. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're a pretty good swimmer. Um, you know, I, I always think one of the things when you look at someone's why, right, everybody talks about their why. And I see people say, well, my why is, you know, they'll, they'll post on Facebook, wherever. Here's my kids. They're my why. And I'm always thinking, look, I know people love their kids and I know they'll do anything for their kids <laughs> and size for their kids. But there's a lot more layers to someone's why than that. Like if we peel back layers there's usually a lot more layers to that onion. And one of the things that I always wonder is for a Navy SEAL, and it's different for everybody, we're asking you about you, what is it that makes it worth risking your life going through all <clears throat> of the physical demands, going, you know, every temptation to ring the bell, what makes it worth it? What makes it worth the risk and worth the, worth the extreme pain? What, what makes it worth it? What's the thing that's so worth having that makes all of that worth it? Well, so, so, I mean, there was a lot in that question. Um, and so I, I'll, I'm going to give a short answer and then we can circle back to the bit, other bits and pieces on it. But I think like what, <clears throat> so what makes it worth it for me? Um, you know, ultimately the, the reward, right? The reward of being a seal um, is the opportunity and the experiences that I got, 
you know, the opportunities with the people that I got to do these amazing things with and the experiences that we got to do, <clears throat> you know, I think, I think you and I have talked about, um, you know, pain and fear and sadness, you know, versus happiness and, you know, feeling good and, you know, um, you know, making, you know, everything's roses and butterflies. And I think that you and I both agree that, um, you know, you, you really don't know what good feels like and what happiness feels like unless you've also felt the deep sadness that goes along with loss and all the other emotions, you know, like when we lose a parent or, or, you know, you go on the battlefield and you lose friends, things like that. Um, and, and the beauty is for, for me and SEAL team is that, you know, man, you get to go to those extremes of extreme happiness and extreme sadness a lot. Uh, you know, and they give you, it gives you scars, emotional scars, but you know, that's a, that's a, a life well spent if you have a lot of scars. Right. And so I, you know, I don't regret anything like that. I think that that just enriches your life, the good and the bad. And so for me, the reward, the reason to do it um, you know, personally is because of the experiences, and the people that I got to have those experiences opportunities with. Now, I'll also say that as you get more senior, um, you know, I, I think that when you start out in life, I think that, you know, you, you're self-absorbed isn't necessarily the right word, but you're, you're focusing on self-fulfillment and self-achievement. And maybe, you know, you've got a girlfriend or a wife and your immediate family and you're focused on, you know, working, working hard for them and working hard with them. And, and that's good, right? And you need that. And that's important um, because it sets a baseline and it lets you, you know, I think it gives you your, your, your grass, you know, your foundation in the ground. But as you get older, right, I think that those things change. I think that you start wanting to take care of a larger group of people, at least me. This is, this is another reason what I got out of SEAL teams is I got older and more senior. And what I love doing, what I found was, you know, you know, my passion within, I mean, I know that's overused, but, you know, you know, the, the thing that I enjoyed most about SEAL Team as I got older was taking care of people and setting the conditions so that they could enjoy success, right? So setting the conditions, setting, uh, you know, uh, an organization and a culture of trust and transparency and honesty, you know, the, the, so that ideas and debate and discussion and planning can, you know, be as honest as possible, as truthful as possible. Because I think that, you know, when you do that and you build cultures like that and you have people who are participating in cultures like that, I think that it ultimately allows you to have uh, more realistic and more durable solutions that last through the test of time a lot better than if you're jamming it down somebody's throat. And so, you know, that's, that's what I personally got out of SEAL team. Uh, and then that's early on. Uh, and then later on, you know, that's another piece of what I really got out of SEAL team and what, what I thought I was good at, you know, frankly, uh, and what I enjoyed doing. Yeah. And, and just for everybody watching, um, <clears throat> when I had Tom on, obviously Tom is speaking 
of his own experiences. He's speaking on his own behalf. Nobody out there is, is you know, qualified to come on a podcast and probably speak for all the SEALs. There is, the, you know, the SEALs run, a, there's the, the personalities, the experiences, the perceptions. You know, you're going to have a bunch of different stuff. I'm just, this is, we're talking about you, Tom in particular, and him making sense of it. Um, so, Tom, in terms of, what what has being a seal taught you about life and about human nature you have a great vantage point what has it taught you about about life and about human nature okay so another great question and you know another fun question to talk about so you know obviously you know you know i told you a little bit about my story right and so i had some i had some character flaws uh clearly that had to be you know beaten out of me. Um, and so if I talk about, you know, what SEAL team taught me, and again, like you know, like you noted, you know, this is different for everybody. I think, you know, different people have different, you know, things they're working on, different people have different experiences in the SEAL team, different people process their experiences in different ways, right? But for me, you know, the things that I got out of it were, you know, well, I'll start with humility, right? So, um, you know, I, you know, when we were swimming, now I didn't swim 10,000 yards a day, but, you know, there were guys one lane over who were, and I was still swimming an awful lot. And I thought I was pretty tough. Um, but I tell you what, um, Hell Week was an eye-opening experience for me, right? So, you know, I think that in sports you're, you're used to, now jiu-jitsu is probably not like this, but, you know, swimming and, you know, track, things like that, you know, they want you to be a really – high performance machine, right? And so, you know, if you've got a, a banged up elbow or, or, or wrist or shoulder, you know, you go get the muscle stem and the heating and the icing. And, you know, you really, you want that machine to work just perfectly. But I think they want a, a, a pickup truck, a beat up pickup truck in buds, you know, like a F-150 that's going to keep going with a, with some bumps and bruises, you know, and Noah can probably empathize with this, you know, from, from his experiences in the Marine Corps. And I just wasn't used to that. Right. And so hell week was an eye opening experience. Getting through hell week with injuries was an eye opening experience for me. And it, it changed the way that I thought of myself and it changed the way I thought about myself in relationship to other people. Um, you know, when you go through that and you go through that crucible with, um, you know, people like, you know, you know, 19, 20 year olds and they're just, you know, they're breezing through it, man. And, and, you know, and, you know, you're, it's, it's shocking, you know, what a lot of people are made of that I didn't realize, uh, before I got in there. Um, resiliency is another trait that I, that I, you know, learn. I mean, I had a little bit of it, but you know, we've got a saying in SEAL team fail forward, right? So in training, we're going to take you to failure. I mean, that's the, that's the point of some of the training evolutions is to keep going until you fail. And then what are you going to do with it? How are you going to process that? How are you going to learn from it? Right. And now you know that you've got a new limitation. You know what it felt like as you were coming up to that limitation. You know what it feels like as you hit that limitation, you know what it feels like to fail. And so, you know, you, you learn to pick yourself back up. You learn to move that line a little bit further to the right so that now you've got a new threshold um, and that's just a, a lifelong lesson in being resilient, right? And so I learned that, and, and I appreciate that lesson every day, for sure. Um, problem solving is another one. Um, 
I think SEALs are world-class, set the gold standard for problem solving. I mean, there is nothing that you can't tell a SEAL or a SEAL platoon or a SEAL team, go solve this problem, and they will, they will figure out a way to do it. And I wish there was a way to articulate that, you know, when we're transitioning. I wish there was a way to make uh, civilian leaders understand that when they're hiring SEALs that, like, look, our thing is problem solving. That's what we do. And learning to do that and learning how to creatively do that and learning how to stay with the problem until it's solved, learning how to, you know, hey, if you only if you got nine tenths of it done and then it didn't work out, stopping and starting over from a different perspective and solving it that way, that is one of the hardest things in the world to do, right? Because you're wasting time and energy. But you know, you gotta do it. And so and and learning that and having that mindset uh, is is a special gift, you know, the SEAL teams gave me. I, I think you learn about authentic leadership. Um, you know, everybody talks about leadership and everybody thinks they know what leadership is. And, you know, some people really, really are natural leaders. A lot of leaders are, are learned. You know, I learned leadership. I was not a natural leader. But what I also learned along the way is it has to be authentic. It has to be your way. You can't fake it. You can't do it in some way that you see somebody else doing it who's successful because, you know, everybody will sniff that out. And in SEAL teams, they're not going to tolerate it. You know, probably much like the Marine Corps, they're not going to tolerate inauthentic leadership. So, you know, it's a it's a great skill to develop, and it's a it's a rewarding life when you get to be a leader. Uh, but you know, you, you're not going to enjoy it, and you're not going to be good at it. And frankly, people are going to you know fight you on it if you're inauthentic. So, you know, develop your own style, and then enjoy using your style. And that was another gift that I got from. Uh, from the SEAL team. I, I, I tell you the last, the last thing I'd tell you before talking about human nature is that, um, and I knew this long before, you know, you get the back to the welder's glove. Um, you know, I knew negative reinforcement is a very good tool. And I've always known that that works really well. And I, and I, I would think that, you know, people like us, you know, people like you, Frank, people like you, Noah, and, and people of our mindset understand the value of negative reinforcement, right? My father worked on me in that regard, swim coaches. I had a swim coach that said, Tom, the day I stop yelling at you is the day I don't, I don't care about you anymore. Roger that. Swiss, uh, SEAL team, you know, is all about negative reinforcement. You know, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't get any attaboys in, in the SEAL team. Your attaboy is a job well done, right? And so, um, I firmly believe in negative reinforcement. So that just was reinforced as SEAL team. As far as human nature goes, uh, and this is this is an interesting question because, you know, I think that, you know, when we talk about human nature, it's not just you know, my, you know, my life's work in the SEAL teams. This is all of human nature. So we have, and, and you know, this ties into time at the Middle East, but, you know, in, in interacting, I'm not going to, I'm going to talk about it from, you know, the interactions that I've had with, you know, host nation forces and partner forces overseas. Human nature, in my opinion, one of the key facets of it, the, the point that, you know, is worth mentioning here today is that I think um, 
people will always back what we call the strong horse. You know, regardless if the strong horse is right, regardless if the strong, horn, strong horse is just or fair or honorable, they will always back the strong horse because it's in their own self-interest to do so. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, that works on the that's on the battlefield for sure. Um, but then I think it carries over into many facets of life. Right. And you can imagine where where it would go. But um, it's interesting. That people will follow a strong horse because it's in their own self-interest out of fear or because they think they're going to get something where they genuinely believe in it. But they'll they will generally follow the strong horse even if they know it's wrong. And, you know, and, and, you know, I find myself doing that from time to time. Uh, and, and I struggle with it when I find myself doing it because, you know, that goes to having the moral courage to do what's right. And if more of us had the moral courage to do what's right and, and boy, what a tough thing, you know, peer pressure, loyalty, all those bits and pieces come into the, come into play. But if we all, if we could develop our sense of moral courage, the world would be a hell of a lot better place. And we would hold, we would hold people accountable much more. So who needed to be held accountable if we all had a little bit more moral courage, me included. Tom, Tom, you know, that's so much good stuff there. You said, um, you made me think when you said in the seals, a lot of the negative reinforcement is is what is is how it's designed, and that actually helps you get the most out of each seal. And it made me think of so like Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, right? Maybe arguably the best NFL coach of all time. And it's interesting because the best NFL coach of all time just doesn't. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't say much. He looks kind of grumpy. And and his his thing, of course, was like do your job, right? It's like. If you, could, if you could get a good job out of Bill Belichick, I'm sure there are guys that were just thrilled and elated. If the guy came up to you and took the time to say, great job, great block, just that, or good block, right? You're probably not going to get a great out of them. Just to hear that guy say, good job, good block, good play. I mean, the players just live for, for that, right? Just, just to get that much out of them, or a Nick Saban. I also was thinking about you when you were talking about Hell Week, and how eye-opening that was, and how humbling it was, and how, you know, some of the some of the feats of strength and endurance and pain threshold that you saw there that 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 were that were that stood out. And I thought about you going through Hell Week, right? Those phys- physically grueling, physically demanding. Other people are ringing the bell, right? They're ringing the bell. They or they're or they're injury disqualified. So certain you know certain prospects in there who are trying to make it drop out. Did ringing the bell cross your mind? And if it crossed your mind, what's the thought process that defeats ringing the bell? How do you not ring the bell? What's the mindset? What's the self-talk? And did it cross your mind? And how many times did it cross your mind? Okay. Hey, can I can I circle back to do your job real quick yeah, before I answer the, the bell question? Okay, yeah. so... So, and I love that. And I've heard that Belichick quote before and I love it. And so if I could break it down because, because it's bigger than do your job for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it goes to, it goes to two, it goes to two or three of the critical components. I think that are, 
are that have to be part of somebody's uh, make chemical makeup in the beginning, at least. Right. And so when when you say do your job, you have to be competent. Right. So you whatever you're doing, whatever you go and decide you want to do in life, you have to be competent first and foremost. It's a must. You can't do anything until you're competent. Right. And then the second thing you do is what Bill Belichick's talking about, about performance. Do your job. So perform every day. Compete and perform and do your best every day. We got a saying in the SEALs called, says, earn your trident, right? It's part of a much larger larger ethos that we have. And people <clears throat> disagree on what's important and what means the most to them as far as the ethos goes, because there's bits and pieces in there for everybody. But everybody knows earn your trident every day. Do your job. That's the equivalent of do your job, right? Because, and the reason, the reason why it's so important to be competent and to, you know, have perform and do and perform and compete and try and win every day is because that's how you get trust, right? And so what Belichick, what I think Belichick is saying, when he says do your job, he's going, look, if you do your job, then I'll trust you. And if I trust you and your teammates trust you, now we're going to play bigger and better than ourselves. We're going to be a force multiplier because if we trust each other, now you know your lane, you know your responsibilities, you know what you're going to do, and that frees me up in my mind to focus on what I got to do and what I got to achieve at. And so now, you know, I don't get distracted by the white noise because I'm worried that little Timmy is not going to do his job. Because if everybody's doing their job, now we're working as a, on a higher level because now we're able to focus and execute at a higher level because I don't have to worry about somebody else not doing their job. And so, and so you know, performance and competence leading to trust is huge. And there's one more piece of it that we'll, we'll talk about later on. But I just want to circle back to do your job because I love that quote as well. But I think it means so much more than just do your job. Um, okay. Um, so what, ringing the bell, man. Now, now ringing the bell. What, I mean, that is the golden question, right? So that is the golden question. And, and, and I'm, and I'm going to be a big letdown here because I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. I can tell you that I didn't think about ringing the bell. I mean, yeah, of course you think about ringing the bell, but like I never got to seriously where I was thinking about ringing the bell. Now, now what I've thought about um, regarding people who ring the bell is I've always wondered if it's a personal decision. Are they ringing the bell because they're in pain or they're so miserable that they, you know, can't, don't feel like that they can continue? Or are they ringing the bell because they feel like they're letting their teammates down? They're not holding up their end of the boat. They're not holding up their end of the log. I've always wondered about that. And and I don't know because I don't know. I, I should I should have asked those questions to students, but but I you know, you don't want to mess with them and then they're in that very delicate state of mind. Um, and so I never ask those questions, but I always wonder about it. Now, I also gotta tell you the history of the bell, right? Because you know, you see the bell and you ring the bell and it's like degrading and it's like demeaning, right? But it's not. It's not. It was never intended for that. And it's not intended that for that even today. So it started 
ringing the bell started way back in the day because when you were in hell week and you were up for five days with no sleep, you get four hours of sleep in five days. Uh, you get, uh, you get, I think it's one or two hour, one, you know, you get one, two hour nap and another two hour nap. They change that up, but you get about four hours of sleep in five days. And so people are delirious. I mean, they're, they're truly delirious and they're just walking, they just walk off. Right. And, and the instructors couldn't keep track of them. And so they implemented the bell as a way to try and keep track of, you know, students who were, you know, walking off because they were delirious from hell week. Okay. So that's how it started. And so then it's like, okay, well, we got more instructors, better control now. So why don't we stop the bell? Well, so we also have uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that are on staff now. And so, you know, they're very helpful for, you know, guys who've been through numerous combat deployments and you can imagine why, but they've also looked at the bell and they've been like, Hey, you know, this bell is actually really good because it's a conscious decision that a student's making. So a decision has to make this decision on his own. And when he does, it gives him closure. Right. And so when he gets closure, I, I made the decision that this program is not for me. I'm going to ring the bell. And that indicates that I am choosing, selecting to leave the program. And so what it does is it gives them closure. Right. And then the psychologist, psychiatrist and the leaders are able to get with these kids and be like, hey, let's process this. And so they're like, you know, what did you learn? What did you get out of this? What's the good stuff that you got out of this? And then how are you going to take what you've learned into your next challenge in life? You know, so let's turn this into a positive experience. What do we learn from it? What do we want to do with it? And how are we going to be successful using what we got out of this experience in the next venture you, you attack? So the bell, um, you know, it, it's, I mean, it represents finality and you're on the spot when you do it, but there's a lot of goodness to the bell as well. Um, and, and I really don't know, I really don't know what makes somebody ring that bell. I, I thought you, Tom, I thought you were going to tell me it crossed, hey, Frank, it crossed my mind three or four times to ring that thing. And I blame but So that's, that's a testament, to, <laughs> it's a testament to, to your, uh, to, to your, you know, to your mindset, your okay. resilient pain threshold. Um, that's, well, that's I can it. tell you a funny story if you want. The closest yeah. I got. The closest I got was we were doing rock portage. It was the first night of Hell Week, and it was really cold. It was a December Hell Week. And so we popped our boat on the rocks. And so the instructors told me to go up to the van and get another boat out. And so I'm rolling, trying to get it. And I go in the van, and the heater's on, and there's like a few a few kids in there who decided that the program wasn't for them. They were sitting there and they had a donut and they had coffee and the heater was on. And I sat down and I was like looking at them and I was talking to them and I was just like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. And then it was, something happened, something clicked. And I was just like, I got to get out of here. And I, <laughs> and I literally it was like leaving a haunted house. I like was scratching at the door, getting out. And I got out and the second I got out, I was like, Jesus, I want to go back in, <laughs> but, I did, but I didn't. And so that was the closest I got. <laughs> Let's talk about balance. Okay. Balance, ah. because you, there are, there are a lot of parallels between the, you know, the Navy SEALs and say an elite, um, 
an elite martial artist or an elite fighter, um, obviously you guys are dealing life and death in our uh, in our ecosystem. There's not much of that, right? The, the most somebody could could have is a serious injury, or they could go to the to the emergency room. Um, but the, the psychological makeup, there's a lot of the same qualities. And one of the things I'm interested in is how do you balance being in that alpha ecosystem and all the demands of that um, and all of the, you know, sort of the, the, the alpha energy and the, and the testosterone and the toughness and the mental toughness and then transitioning to civilian life when you're off the clock, when you're at a mall, when you're out in traffic. How do you see, because that seems, that, that can be a challenge for a lot of people, right? They say, if you want to see someone's true character, give them power. Give them a lot of power. Let them be maybe the roughest person in the zip code or in the city. And then how do they wear that power? How do you, what have you seen work in terms of balancing so you can, so you can know when to, when, when to flip the switch, right? When you're on a, you're on a mission or you're, you know, whatever guys are in a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a war zone, whatever. And then coming back to everyday civilian life to where you're able to just lay low, be, um, be, have exercise restraint, be humble. How, what do you do? What have you seen work to balance that so that you don't get yourself in trouble outside of, you know, a mission? Yeah. Well, well, you know, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of things that a lot of programs that we have in the SEAL teams, right? And so um, that, that are trying to address this. And so I'll, I'll real quickly tell you a little bit about those programs. You know, we have a human performance program. It's called the whole, and it's a whole man concept type of thing where, you know, there's a number of pillars uh, from psychologists and psychiatrists and spiritual, spiritual health and, you know, yoga and stretching and nutrition. And, and these pillars are there designed um, to help, you know, the fa- help the, the, the service members, help the SEALs, right? And so the idea is that, you know, as you go up a trajectory in your career, uh, you know, you start down here, you've got a little bit of responsibility, a little bit of knowledge and experience. You gain more experience, more responsibility, but you're going to get broken, right, mentally or physically with numerous combat deployments. And so these pillars are there to <clears throat> hopefully identify problems sooner uh, and then fix problems, you know, as if they happen to get you back online to continue up that trajectory, you know. So um, it's it's not perfect, but um, it does work because, we, you know, we force people to check in with all of these disciplines and learn and do programs with all these disciplines at various points uh, in a workup. And I know, by the way, it's really interesting because when you do that with psychologists and psychiatrists, right, it used to be a stigma, right? When Noah was in, if you went and saw the psychiatrist, you were going to get pulled offline. They weren't going to let you deploy. And so now you get behind your peers and you can't make rank. And so, you know, you, you're having a bad experience. But now if everybody's doing it, that stigma has gone. So it's really good in that regard, right? We also have a number of programs for the family members, things like that. Foundations help out with the, with the family members, which is a great thing because, you know, as we all know, if your family is happy, if your wife is happy, it gives you freedom of movement to do what you want to do. And it clears your head up so that you can focus on what you need to focus on. Right. And so that's that's kind of what 
NSW, the enterprise, is doing. Um, from from my perspective, you know, from my perspective, I, I think that when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize, you, 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 number one, when you're in the middle of it, when you're doing platoon after platoon or you're at a SEAL team and you're running a SEAL team and you're doing the day-to-day tactical operations, you you're have number one, you're having so much fun uh, doing a doing an, an incredible mission with incredible people that you don't uh, you know you don't necessarily want to quit. And number two, you know your teammates, right? So you don't want to let your teammates down. And you know anytime that you're offline or you get out of that game, it feels like you're letting your teammates down. So I think when you're in it, uh, you know you can be in it for years. The enlisted guys. Uh, and the guys at SEAL Team 6 are in it for years, constant, high alert, you know, just stress through the roof for years on end. I mean, it's it's shocking how long that they can maintain that level of stress in their body. But then when you come out of it and you start having to process it because you're out of it, you're on a staff um, or you're retired, um, you know, that's when you got to deal with it. Um and again, you need professionals around to help you deal with it. Um, you know, you need a loving, supporting family uh, with kids, you know, kids who, you know, love and support you as well. You need that uh, because, you know, the divorce rate in the SEAL team is, I think, north of 90 percent. Um, I think it's well north of 90 percent. And that's and that's that's hard. Right. It's because it's a hard life. And, you know, so. I think that you're going to have to deal with you can deal with it now or you can deal with it later. I think that whatever situation you're in is going to determine is going to have a lot to do with when you have to process it, but you're going to have to process it. Um, and so that's the deal. And so I think that, uh, you know, when you transition uh, out of the military and you're going to find another job and, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with this. And I wouldn't say that my first experience was, was all that good. Um, I had a job for, uh, just under six months. Um, and what I got out of that, you know, now that I'm still processing that experience, by the way, what I got out of that is that um, I now know my value um, to, you know, civilian corporations. I know better how to articulate my value uh, to civilian organizations. Um, I, I unfortunately, I'll say that I think civilian organizations kind of focus on the individual accomplishments uh, more so than the team objectives. Um, I think that we're there's a there's a willingness to not necessarily follow the best policy uh, that would help the mission or the 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 company. Uh, because of individual rice bowls sometimes um, and breaking. And so then, you know, those are things that I have to learn and I have to s- sort of kind of get, get my arm, my head around is, you know, what, what is, you know, what are the, the, what's the mindset in the civilian world compared to the mindset in the civilian world and getting your head around the differences and accepting the differences because, you know, I think maybe I might have tried to change some of those differences. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, so, so you gotta, you know, Noah's laughing because he really, he, I'm bringing it back 25 years ago, probably when he transitioned. Um, 
but it's just it's interesting and i so i still need to process a lot of that and and recognize that you know you you're not going to necessarily change those organizations and change that mindset um and so you got to figure out a way to get gratification in those organizations with a different culture than what you're used to Noah, you've been waiting patiently. I know you have a question for Tom. Uh, what what have you been you've been you've been enjoying it? You've been processing it. What you have, you have a question or a comment? Sure. Um, you know, uh, I, I, it's so hard to find your tribe whenever you when you leave active duty. It's so hard, um, and I found um, my you know I, I I concur with you exactly your sentiments. Um, the, uh, the civilians, um, and I'm going to speak to them like they're an alien species because they are aliens to us, uh, still to this day. And it was, it was a bitter pill to swallow that, um, the, you know, I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. And when you talk about, uh, uh, individual rice bowls, um, that's a bitter pill to swallow. And I want to throw out to you, and I don't know if you've had a discussion with Frank, have you considered uh, taking or participating in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Um, because I will tell you that for me, um, I found that tribe in after looking for a while, and it's wonderful. Oh, that's a great question. And you, you know that SEALs, we love – you know, there's all kinds of mixed martial artists in, in the SEAL teams. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as a, as a young guy, um, I took a number of combat fighting courses. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed them because I took karate uh, when I was younger and I thoroughly enjoyed them. And, but what's interesting about the combat fighting courses that, that, I, that I took within the SEAL teams is, you know, whenever you would start, you would learn these techniques and they have some, we had some pretty, interesting techniques and the, the, the flying neck seal. I'm not sure if you could look that one up, but um, I'm not even going to go into it because it's a little embarrassing, uh, but we had some interesting techniques. And so what would happen is, is you would get into sparring. Uh, you would automatically revert back to whatever you knew and whatever you were comfortable with. Right. And so, you know, all the stuff that you had learned in your combat fighting course was out the window and, and everybody was doing what they were comfortable with. And so, then uh, I did a tour over in Spain, and we had a guy in our training cell who was a really accomplished um, mixed martial artist. And so he started teaching us um, some jujitsu, uh, you know, rolling on the mat. And so, yeah, I was totally getting into that and totally loving it. And then um, I broke my neck. Uh, so I got, I got C5, C6. I got a metal plate in my neck, and uh, it was from a, a guillotine choke. Mm. And um, so... I, I, I stopped uh, stopped doing jujitsu after that. I'm sorry to hear that, but I do love it. I get it, and I got a good friend. I got good friends down in Tampa uh, who do it, and, and you know they're at a gym, and so um, you know they they do. They've got a jujitsu gym, and then also like a it's their version of CrossFit, uh, and so I'll go in and still you know do the CrossFit with those guys and, and stuff like that from time to time. So I love it. I respect the hell out of it, uh, um, but I'm, I'm cautious of it. I'm cautious. Understandable. Hey, hey, Tom, Tom, I wanted to say, you, you and I have had this conversation, but but it'd be interesting for the listeners and for Noah. Um, 
because you, you you sort of wonder which athletes are better prepared to be a seal. Like you know, you've got these wrestlers that'll run through a wall and 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 who who got this in, in amazing drive. You got the swimmers that have the lungs and can handle being in the water and and the misery of swimming that comes with swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and holding your breath um, and being miserable and cold and, and, and dealing with the shivers. Just anecdotally, from your, not speaking for the SEALs, but just speaking for Tom DeJarnette, which athletes have you seen that tend to convert the best for, the, for that particular challenge of being a SEAL? That's a good. That's a good question. And you, you know, you know, we've spent a lot of money, uh, and resources, and time, and energy, trying to figure out, you know, the 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 best sports to become seals, the best parts of the country to become seals, um, you know. And frankly, you we can't figure it out. Um, anecdotally, some people will tell you that uh, all seals play chess. Um, they'll tell you that lacrosse, uh, is a, is, is a sport that, that should be, um, a prerequisite, not a prerequisite. That's a little strong of a word, but lacrosse is a strong indicator of success and buds. They'll tell you that people from new England, uh, are better equipped to go through buds because of cold water. But the truth is, is that, you know, nobody knows, nobody knows. I mean, I can remember, um, I can remember again in Hell Week, I can remember coming out from Chow, you know, and a whole boat crew quit, right? And so, you know, and and the boat crew is made up of all different types of athletes. So a boat crew is how you get chopped up. It's a six, six, seven man group underneath an IBS, which is a, a inflatable boat small. And you carry this boat everywhere in Hell Week. And sometimes they load it up with sand and do whatever. But but we got done with Chow one night, and um, a whole boat crew had quit. And so you know that tells me that that, and they were all different types of athletes. So that tells me that it's not a sport that dictates you know what's who's going to make it and who's not. You can't look at somebody and tell if they're going to make it or not. If the whole boat crew quit, and they were all eating Chow together they were having some sort of conversation that didn't end well for them. Right. And so mentally something happened to those guys, right. Where they all quit at chow. And that has always stuck with me because that tells me that it's a mental game. And it tells me that, you know, something in that conversation that that boat crew leader was having or somebody who was very influential within that boat crew was saying, and it, affected everybody so much that they all decided to quit. Amazing. So you reminded me, and I think you and I have, have talked about this, but Daniel Kahneman, the book Thinking Fast and Slow, and there's, yes. he, talks in, he talks in the book, and I guess he's, what, he, he's won, he is a Nobel, Nobel Prize winning, I think, economist, and he's, he's done some, some excellent books. But he talks about a lot about decision making and the flaws of human decision making and following our gut. And one of the things he talks about in there, Noah, you're you're very well read on this. You probably read this. You read way more than I do. But he, ta- he he talks about some research that had been done in the military where they would they were trying to basically the same thing we're talking about. They're trying to predict who's going, who will be the leaders, who will quit, who will this. 
and they go in and they look at the young, the young members of the military, and they're trying to predict who's going to emerge as the leader, who's going to be the toughest, who's going to rise up. And in general, they're not very good. Even the smartest minds are not very good at predicting who go, who's going to be the best, who's going to be the best leader in here, who's going to be the best soldier. They're not very, it, 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 that, that we're not, we don't have it down to a science. We're, we're surprisingly um, uh, not very well able to make these predictions, which is shocking because we think, well, Okay, the best athlete walked in the room, the most alpha whoever, that's going to be the leader. That's going to be the highest performer. And these ecosystems, the Navy SEALs, the fight world, the military show us it's not that simple. It's a lot trickier than that to size up, to just look at someone. And what's interesting about that is all of us think, I mean, we make these instant judgments in life. We meet someone 15, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, the way they talk, the way they move, the way they this, and we think we've got... We've sized up what their potential is, if they're worth knowing, if, you know, whatever. And amazingly, a lot of times it's, it's amazing how often we're wrong. We just totally read someone the wrong way and size them up the wrong way. And you see that a lot in the SEALs where you can have this quiet, humble, doesn't look like a whole lot, and then winds up being one of your best performers. And you got this other guy who's built like an Adonis. He's got the swagger. He's got the alpha mm -hmm. thing. And he rings the bell day one. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. Uh, so, so let me, let me, so let me say, let me say, let me say this, let me start by this before I get into the Con, the Kahneman book. I read that book, by the way, I didn't, I didn't understand half of it. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm not a smart man, but, but I get it. Thinking slow and thinking fast. It's about the two systems of thought, right? It's about instinctual type thought versus deliberate type thought. And let me come back to that in just a second. Um, and let me tell you what I think some defining characteristics of SEALs are. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, obviously, I think they're really intelligent, you know, I and I think even as intelligent as they are, I think their emotional intelligence is one of the strengths of seals i think the seals ability to read a room uh you know process the room and make decisions based on what they're feeling from you know people in the room how the room's set up how the room's positioned i think that the emotional intelligence of, the, of dealing with situations and making instinctual decisions based on those based on on how the room feels or how the interaction feels uh, I think SEALs do that uh, better than anyone. Um, I think they're very self-actualized. You know, I think they understand themselves really well. Um, and I think that that helps them with their emotional intelligence. I think, frankly, to be have a strong emotional intelligence, you've, you've got to be self-actualized, you know? I think that SEALs are, uh, you know, generally lifelong learners. I think they're interested and curious uh, about everything. Um, and I and I think that that's not something that you learn. I think that's something that you you you're born with, where you're just curious about everything. You want to learn about it. And you want to help it or fix it or understand it, right? And so that, I think that's a characteristic. Um, we've talked about world class problem solvers. Um, it's amazing the tenacity, the problem solving tenacity 
uh, you know, that, that the majority of SEALs have and, and how well they do it. So, uh, you know, I think that that uh, is one of our strengths. And it's amazing, uh, you know, just how effective SEALs are in that. Now, a lot of that might be because our enlisted community, 65% um, of our enlisted community, uh, you know, has four-year college degrees, approximately, which is, which is, you know, it's, it's not even close. Any, no, no other community in the military, including special operations, comes even cl remotely close to that. I mean, and I'm talking four-year degree, not an associate's degree, and a four-year degree. So, you know, we're at, a, we're at a huge advantage as far as problem solving goes when you've got that kind of, you know, uh, polished, you know, I, that's not the right word, just, you know, trained brain power. Uh, you know, in your in your group. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and you talked about this early on, uh, and and this is this is probably where you know high level sports uh, and seals intersects most notably. Seals love to win. No, I've never met a group of people who wants to win more than seals. Um, you know, they they you know will do just about anything to win. Um, you know, and, and I love that aspect that goes to competition and, you know, it's in our, it's in, it's in the three of our DNA, right? We love to win and we're willing to work and do what it takes to win. And it's in our DNA and it's always been there. And, and it's, and I think it's one of the hallmark traits of, of seals. So now as, Tom, as far as, 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 uh, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You're going to say as far as. Well, I was just—I was going to switch gears and talk about the Kahneman book. Uh, yes. I think it's going fast and how it relates to us. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think what you're saying there is, you know, we're talking about the two systems of thinking: the the instinctual type, reactive uh, decision making, uh, and the deliberate decision making, right? And so, and so, and so, which one is better for for being a seal? And honestly, you know, I don't know. I, I think they both have their place. I think that, you know, uh, you know, I think that the instinctual piece uh, comes into play uh, earlier, a lot more on your instincts, um, because those are kind of uh, unclear situations that you have to feel out using your emotional intelligence. And, you know, you've got a very short period of time to make some of those decisions. Um, and then, you know, the, then there are also garrison decisions that require a deliberative brain. Somebody who processes risk and processes contingencies, processes assumptions and limitations and constraints and restraints and, you know, can come up with a plan that balances uh, resources and prioritize efforts. And you can change the balance of resources at different phases. So they're, they're both important, right? Um, and I think experience I think your life experience and your experience in the SEAL team obviously has a lot to do with how quickly you should you process information and make decisions, as well as you know, uh, you, you know your decision making matrix. And so, uh, I, it's hard for me to decide which one of those is more important uh, based on Kahneman's book. I, I will say again, just to double down, uh, you said that. You know, it's amazing how smart people can't figure it out. So, you know, and I was like, we spent a lot of money on this uh, and we still haven't figured it out. And then I told you some anecdotal stuff. So, I mean, anybody who tells you that we know what we're doing, you know, our dropout rate is north of 85% per class. So if a class starts, you know, with 200 people, you're going to have somewhere between 30 and 40 get through Hell Week. So 
we clearly don't know what we're doing as far as, you know, selecting the right people to go in. And, you know, then you've got people saying, well, you know, you should change the curriculum. But this curriculum is tried and true. This curriculum has been around with very few changes for a very long time. I mean, it's based on, you know, the principles uh, from days of old, and it hasn't changed that much. You know, and if we think that, you know, individual, we need to screen our instructors who deliver the curriculum better or whatever, um, you know, we do a really good job of that, putting them through instructor qualification course so that they learn how to be a good quality instructor. But we do not want instructors, you know, picking winners and losers out there. We do not want the instructor using his subjectivity to determine what he thinks a SEAL looks like. Let the curriculum do the work. The curriculum will take care of it. We just want the instructors to implement the curriculum. So when, when, when an instructor thinks that he knows, he knows something that the curriculum doesn't and he can pick the guy who's going to be a good SEAL or who should be out of the program, that's where we run into problems. What, what one thing, and, and Noah and I have talked about this many times on our podcast, is sort of the bonding like there is a bonding when you have an ecosystem whether it be the navy seals where things can be life and death people get hurt when things are not done the right way to the t you know you it's imperative that you do things the right you said you'd be super competent you do things the right way your teammates trust you you execute you win and and when you look at the combat sports ecosystem jujitsu wrestling mixed martial arts there is so much bonding that happens when you're sitting there, you're pushing another guy to the brink. You're giving him everything you got. He's giving you everything. You're pouring sweat. You're tired. Sometimes there were old, in the olden days, someone was bleeding, whatever. You know, that guy slammed you, whatever. And there's a bonding that happens in suffering when there's pain, when there's blows, when there's damage, when there's consequences, when there's physical consequences, when when there's grit, when there's grueling, there is a bonding, there's a trust, there's a there's the, all the pretensions out the window. And that's one of the beauties of your ecosystem when you look at the value of the relationships with other high performers is that, you know, people that are earning the bond that happens in those ecosystems is second to none because all the BS and all the pretense and all the, well, let's cut corners and let's do this, it's out the window you're dealing with a different caliber crop of person who says, you know, like I say, if you tell me somebody that wrestled in high school and they were a good high school wrestler, they wrestled in college, or you tell me they have a jujitsu black belt, there's a lot I don't know about them. Or even someone with a college degree, there's a lot I don't know about them. There are people that aren't very smart who have a college degree. But one thing I do know is that they work harder to finish what they start. If someone's a black belt, I know, from a, a reputable black belt, I know, I don't know their work ethic, I don't know their intellect, but I know that they're inclined to finish what they start. If they earned a college degree, I know better than someone else that this person's more inclined to finish what they start. I know that about somebody wrestling in college, I know they don't want the easy way, or that good, really good high school. They don't want the easy way. They, they'll work. They're workers. There are certain knowns that come. You're a Navy SEAL. A lot of doors open just by that because people know, they trust it. They know, well, this person's 
it's highly probable that Tom DeJarnett is really good at preparing, really good at problem solving. He doesn't quit easy, right? He's, he's into earning it. He's going to be a hard worker. And so there's a lot to be said for some of the credibility of people coming out, you know, when they're high performers in these different ecosystems. And as I was saying, the bonding, though, the bonding that you guys have, I'm kind of jealous of. It's got to be second to none to know that you're trusting even your life to the people on either side of you. That's so powerful in terms of like a brotherhood, a bond that that's just, that's something that for the rest of your life, I mean, that, that's a, that's an amazing, um, I just wanted to point that out, but, but I wanted to, I wanted to say another thing when, when it comes to re reinforcement negative, because you know, I, I've, I've argued this and, and a lot of my friends don't like it because we're at a time we're at a time in history right now in 2020 where everything is positive and feel good and happiness is the goal and it's it's kumbaya and utopias and, and there's a lot of that going on. I'm still of a younger generation where Dan Gable was was very influential to a lot of young wrestlers like myself. I have seen negative reinforcement work. I'm not saying it's the only tool, but I've seen that work to great effect. Bill Bilicek's made it work. A lot of great coaches have. Let me let me ask you this, just Tom DeJarnett speaking. What is it about negative reinforcement? What, what's the problem, I guess, with positive reinforcement? How come, how come positive reinforcement doesn't produce the same results in that kind of ecosystem? How come positive reinforcement, Tom, I want, give me, how come it doesn't work? I mean, a lot of people out there would find it hard to believe, say, hey, we should be able to have, a lot of people out there, the naysayer would say, listen, even Navy SEALs, if we went positive reinforcement, we produced even better Navy SEALs. It's better at producing people. How come positive reinforcement, in, from your experience, doesn't work as magnificently as negative reinforcement? What is it about negative reinforcement that's so great? What is it about positive reinforcement that doesn't work as well in that ecosystem and isn't all it's cracked up to be? I'm well, excited for this. So what I'm we, excited I, for this. I, I, yeah, I think we might we could get into trouble on this one because okay. I think there's okay. all kinds of I think there's all kinds of uh, you know factors right because I mean there are some people who respond better to positive reinforcement than negative reinforcement like some people just just pack up their tent and call it right like if they if they get in a negative negative reinforcement realm they they yeah. they don't want to be a part of that organization they don't want to be a part of, of of people who do that right and 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 they there are sometimes high performers in that in that group right that don't respond well to negative reinforcement um and you know i don't know you know maybe you know for example Maybe it's an age thing, right? Maybe when you're young, you need positive reinforcement more than you need negative reinforcement. And maybe as you get a thick skin, you build a resiliency, you got a little grit, maybe you can deal with more negative reinforcement. And I think some people get it along the way uh, at different times, in different manners. But so, I mean, obviously why I think negative reinforcement is so powerful uh, is because I think it sticks. I think... I, and, you know, th this is just me. And, you know, I, this is not there's no science behind any of this. But I think negative reinforcement sticks. I think whenever you hammer somebody uh, because they did something wrong and, you know, hammering them when they do something wrong once, you know, maybe that's not the right thing to do. But if they show a pattern 
a pattern of mistakes that that it, and you can pin that down to something that they should be able to correct, like lack of attention to detail. I mean, I think you got to go with the negative reinforcement route, right? Because the negative reinforcement route is going to, in my opinion, have the best chance to correct that behavior, right? And I think high performers are self again self actualized enough and have enough emotional intelligence to understand just like that swim coach told me when I was little said Tom you know when the day I stop yelling at you is the day I stop caring about you I think that high performers intuitively know that I mean if I'm going to exert energy and effort on you by yelling at you or, or you know punishing you in some way it's not because I I don't think you don't have talent Right. It's because I do think you have talent and I want to get the most out of you. So I think negative reinforcement, I think it sticks a lot better. I think that that's undoubtedly true. Number one. And number two, I think high performers want that honesty and they want that hard feedback and they want to use that negative reinforcement, you know, and that and the the the. the you know, the anger that comes along with it, the, you know, whatever, the chip on your shoulder that comes along with it, whatever it is that comes along with that negative reinforcement to focus their efforts and their energy into that goal. Because I also think that high performers can, you know, focus on attention to the details, focus on the problem, focus on the immediate, immediate goal without losing sight of the much larger goal and the much larger picture and the big prize at the end of the day, after the years of training. I mean, does that make sense? That's kind of where yeah. I'm coming from. I've always been a big believer myself that pain is the greatest teacher. And, 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 and it does, like you said, it gets your attention. I say like Noah, you know, people training in jujitsu and wrestling, like if you have all these people, you have a generation that the attention span of people now is probably the, the, the shortest it's ever been in human history, right? People, 15, 20 second attention spans, their monkey mind, they, they can't. You go into a jujitsu class, right? Where pain is a consequence, right? If you don't pay attention to the instructor showing moves, right? You're, you're hurting yourself when it comes time for the live roles, right? You're, 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 it's, it's, it's a liability to not pay attention. It's a liability to be goofing off in class while the other guy is trying to choke you and armbar you and heel hook you and twist your knee, torque your knee, or slam you know slam you pretty hard. So it gets people's attention. And I remember one of the stories I would tell along these lines of pain being the greatest teacher. When I was a white belt, so it's 2001 or 2002, and I drew. I was I was living in Utah, and I went to California for a tournament. There were like 16, 17 guys in this tournament, including a guy who fought in the UFC, Nam Fan. And they threw the white belts and the blue belts together. They threw us in a, in, a, in a weight class with guys that were 20 pounds heavier. So here I am, white belt. I had wrestled a lot, right? I had a really strong wrestling background. I'm against these guys that are 20 pounds heavier. Some of them are blue belts. I'm a white belt. I have five matches that day. One of the matches was against Nam Fan, who went wind up fighting in the UFC, was a good MMA fighter, won a lot of uh, championships in, in, in submission grappling, very good grappler. So I go out there against Nam Fan, me being the wrestler, I pick him up, right? I pick him up. I'm, I'm feeling good about myself. I go out there, I pick him up. I've got him. He's airborne. His feet are off the ground. I'm taking him down, right? I pick him up and give him a little slam. Soon as we hit the ground, Nam Fan, 160, 165 pounds, these tree trunk tree trunk thighs is arm barring me and extending my arm 
and my arm starts cracking and popping. My arm's going crack, 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 pop, 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 pop. Well, me with fight or flight and being stubborn, I'm not going to tap. I'm thinking I'm going to get my arm out and I'm going to get him. You know, I'm going to do this and that to him. The referee hears the cracking and the popping. He can hear the arm popping and he stops it. Right? He has he has the discretion to stop it, even if you don't tap. Even in UFC, the referee has discretion to say this is going to be so dangerous, even if you don't tap, right? So he stops it. My arm, well, anyway, but by the way, to show you how hard-headed, I wind up doing, it was double elimination. I wind up doing two more matches that day. I was like, I was icing my, my, my arm, and I was seething mad, and I was pissed. But I was like, I'm going to continue. I want to go back out there, and I want to try to get to the finals. I lost in the last 10 seconds of the semifinals. Um, a match that I was winning. I got submitted and I got caught in a triangle. But but my, I went back to Utah. I drive back. My arm was, the swelling in my arm over the next, like, six weeks was like that. It was like ha- half of a, it was like that. And so I was icing that thing religiously. Do you know that the consequence of that, right, pain being the greatest teacher, it was so hard to armbar me after that. It was so, I learned how do they set up the armbar? What does he got to do with his hips swinging out when he changes the angle? You know, he defenses to the armbar was the best thing that could have the best teacher of how do you avoid the armbar? How do you escape the armbar? Was that guy popping my arm? It was like that got my attention to where I'm like, okay, that cannot happen again, right? So pay, again, it's like something like that that was so negative. Two months of like. Not being able to do a lot, you know a whole lot with my arm, but but that again pain being the greatest teacher. So I've always I think that some of the power in our ecosystem. Now Noah, this is the interesting thing: the instructors a lot of time don't have to be negative reinforcers a lot of times in jujitsu because the negative reinforcement a lot of times happens in the art itself. The art itself winds up being the negative. The pain itself, right? The instructor could be nice as can be, but the fact that limbs are being torqued and they could be popped and you know and 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 this is hurt and that is hurt that is sort of a you know short term it's like that's negative stuff that's pain there's a lot of pain there's a lot of inconvenience um but that winds up being the like part of the mastery of jujitsu to teach people and mold them is the pain the pain if you took the pain out of our ecosystem I mean, it's just it, it it doesn't have a lot of the power and the value and the and the transformation. It's the it's the pain that's in that ecosystem. It's the struggle. It's the it's the misery that's in that ecosystem that works a lot of the magic when we see people transformed and we see them dig deep and we see them change and grow these new habits. It's a lot of that is is the pain and their little dance with pain. And so if we took the pain out of our ecosystem. Like and, and and like we talk, Noah and I talk about this too. There are some academies out there as jujitsu gets bigger and more popular. There are academies that are diluting the standard, right? They're giving they're giving belts, they're giving blue belts, purple belts, brown belts, black belts. That a lot a, a lot of people will look and say, "Wow, that's not the standard. That's not strict enough, right? That's not you're not making them pay enough of a price in, to get that black belt." Yeah. So there there's a big concern even in our ecosystem. Are we are a lot of academies diluting it? We call it McDojo, or is there sort of a McDojo effect? Because we want there to be, we want there to be a lot of struggle, a lot of pain in the ecosystem, because that's really, 
it's it's a phenomenal teacher. We we only have you Tom for ten more minutes. I was going to ask you about preparation, but but no, I'm sure I speak for both of us that I want you on again. So we'll go over some of these things then. But you versus fear. Now seals are not the easiest people to scare, but you versus fear. I know you don't like the unknown. You're super prepared. You're not. You're not. You're not. You know, you do everything you can so that there are no unknowns. But what would you, what advice would you give to people, strategies, techniques, so that they can better manage their stress and their fears to perform at a higher level? What, what stands out to you? What, how do you get somebody to overcome, to conquer those fears and, and, and perform better uh, in big situations? Yeah, so... Um... I, I, you know, you're not going to like this answer either. I, I don't, I don't have a good answer for this, but I'll answer it the best way that I can. And, I, and I'll preface this by saying that, you know, it's, it's absolutely a real thing. It's a real thing for everybody, right? It doesn't matter who you are, or what you are. Fear is a real thing. And we have experts who come into the program and train students. And we have experts who work with active duty SEALs you know, on the breathing techniques, the visualization techniques, the self-talk, all of the, the ways, the formal ways that people know how to deal with their fears, right? And so we, we do that. We actively do it. I participate in it, um, you know, and, and, it, and it helps. It certainly helps. Now, what I would say is, is that for me in fear and what I've seen that works and what, I, what works for me is excuse me is you know just recognizing that it's real number one recognizing that other people's fears are real recognizing that fears can change they can subside they can grow and and you know i'll, I'll be honest with you i've seen i've seen on the battlefield where a guy is totally fine one day and then you're in a similar situation the next day but it doesn't look similar to him and it ain't the same situation to him. And he's having a different experience than you're having. And you think it's the same thing as what you were doing yesterday, but not to him. And there is clearly more fear in him than you or vice versa. And so I think, you know, depending or, or recognizing that all of these fears are real and they change and they change for you, they change for people around you all the time is the first step, right? I think acknowledging that uh, is is the first step, right? And so I know that's not the answer that you that you wanted, but then I then I would say that you know there's this goes to something, you know, the, the, this fear thing goes to something that you know, ties into what we're all experiencing in society today, you know, with Corona, right? And the unknowns, the, the, the misinformation, the, you know, the, the lockdowns, you know, the, the fact that the science changes and the data changes. And, and, you know, and so a lot of society is really fearful of this, right? And they're really nervous about this so much so that there's a cottage industry where, you know, SEALs and other special operations guys are getting on and doing seminars and symposiums talking about uh, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And so, you know, you've heard this and you may have even participated in some of these and seen some of these. 
And, you know, the point there is, is that, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable is going to help you with fear for sure. But me telling you that is not going to, you know, that, you know, you've got to go out there and get the reps. You got to go out there and get the reps, right? So you can go to Bud's. And it's going to help you, you know, be able to deal with fear and unknown and uncertainties and, you know, make decisions in those types of environments better than usual. But I doubt that that's what most people want to do. Right. So I think that the way you the way you can start to manage fear is, you know, and you if you want to get comfortable being comfortable, if you want to be comfortable, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think what you need to do is you need to practice it. And, you know, look, if you like coffee, drink tea one day, right? If you go to the gym and you don't like doing push-ups, do push-ups, right? It's, you know, muscle confusion. If you're a runner, go swim. If you're a swimmer, go run. Believe me, I'm a swimmer. I hate running, but I run. I ran this morning, and I hate, and I confirmed myself that I hate it just as much as I always have, but I still do it, right? Because you got to go do it. You got to go do it, right? And you got to do, you got to, you know, read books that you don't normally read. If you read nonfiction, go read fiction, right? If you've never, if you haven't read poetry in a while, go read, go read, go read a Shakespearean sonnet, you know, go do things that make you uncomfortable because that will carry over in all aspects of your life. In my opinion, that will help you deal with fear because I think fear comes from the unknown and the uncertain aspects, right? So, you know, do that, prepare. We know you talk. We talk about preparation. We've talked about preparation this whole, this whole, uh, this whole podcast, right? So prepare. If you got fear of getting on stage, like I do, I, I'm not a big public speaker. Preparing will help help that a lot, right? Authenticity. We've talked a little bit about authenticity. I think, you know, if if you're trying to fake who you are and fake what you believe, while you're trying to do something. It's going to compound the fear. So be authentic in the way that, you know, you, you deal with your fears. So the, the point for fear to me is, you know, to, to, you know, manage it with those techniques, but also look, appreciate it. Appreciate fear. Fear is a fear is healthy. It's good. Right. And it can help you perform at a much higher level. Right. Fear can actually, if you know how to focus your fear, you can actually perform at a much higher level than you normally could because it's there for a reason, man. It's good. Just learn to work with it and appreciate it and embrace it to some degree. I mean, think about this, right? So, you know, a lot of people jump out of airplanes, right? But I can't imagine, I can't imagine that anybody is completely comfortable the first time they ever jump out of an airplane. But eventually... You know, some people do it for their jobs. We do it for the jobs, but a lot of people do it just because they want to go do it. But I guarantee you that nobody is comfortable jumping out of an airplane the first time. But very quickly, not only do they get comfortable with it, but they, they start loving it. They love it because of the fear that they now know how to control, right, jumping out of that airplane. And they get good at it. They get proficient in the sky. And they get to the point where their 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 aperture is opened up and they're no longer looking through a soda straw because they're breathing too hard. They're hyperventilating and they can't think about anything. Now they're looking around and they're enjoying how beautiful it is. And they're enjoying being in the air with other people. And that's because they've learned to manage that fear, right? And 
all kinds, and we should try to do that all year, in my opinion. Now, um, Tom, I could go on for another two hours, but I have a long list of, of, of tough stuff here. But in the interest of Christmas Eve and 90-minute uh, podcast, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for um, – for, for being available to us and, 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 and giving us so much good information. We'd love to have you on again sometime in 2020, 2021 as that fits your schedule. Noah, um, I know you probably have a few final thoughts or a question. Now, now's the time, brother, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, man. Uh, thanks, Frank. Um, I know that uh, yeah, after 25 years, you haven't had to make a lot of major career decisions um, because um, – You've had that kind of made for you is either you stay on or you stay on or you stay on. And you've entered a workforce. Uh, I should say you've entered civilian life um, in a whole different, it's a whole different context um, than what you left it in. And, um, you know, nowadays there's a technology out of the tech firms, out of the tech industry, which is you fell fast fell often. Um, and that works great for business plans, but to shed 25 years of, of um, where you've earned your way to and to fell fast, fell often. Um, what are your thoughts and, and, or even what are your feelings right now after you speaking about fear and jumping out? Isn't this exciting? Yes, it is. It is very exciting, um, and you know, it's it, you know, and I, I equate it to getting to learn a whole new game. And so, you know, it's like being an ensign all over again, and getting to learn everything, uh, you know, and have the experience. You know, that's kind of what I was talking about the, in the beginning. Like, I, I didn't know how, I didn't know the value I could add to a company, and I certainly didn't know how to articulate that. And now I do. Now I know what I can bring to a company. And I know how to do it. And I know that, you know, frankly, most a lot of other people can't can't do what I can do for a company. So. So, yes, that part is exciting. And that was a couple of big takeaways that I'm still processing from my first experience. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the way people think, the way people talk, I mean, every conversation, <clears throat> there's like a warm up. Like you, you got to you talk for two or three minutes where everybody, you know, we all ask each other how our dogs and cats are doing uh, before we really start talking about the meat and potatoes. And and and, and it, it, at first I was just like, oh, man, we're burning time, man. Let's roll. We got to roll. But I quickly liked that. I quickly got used to that. Right. It's a nice icebreaker. It, you can you learn a lot more about somebody than just how their dogs do it. You learn if they're in a good mood. You learn if they got any sleep. You learn if, you know, are we ready to are we ready to do this thing today? Or is, you know, is Tom working at 50 percent? Like so you learn a lot of neat stuff by going through those those questions at the beginning. So so some things I very quickly was like, aha, that makes good sense. Other things I still need to process. Right. So I'm and I, but but the beauty is, is I'm a lifelong learner. So, you know, this is right in my wheelhouse. It's like it's like exciting to, to go to work every day because, you know, frankly, for the last three or four years of my career, 
I was, I mean, I, I, people would come into my office with issues and problems and I would know the answer before they would get halfway through the problem. Cause I'd seen the problem three or four times, you know? And so, and so, I mean, it's, it's, that's nice, but it's not, you're not learning anything. Um, so yeah, I had another point on that, that I was going to say, but I, I forgot what it was. Um, well, the tech industry uh, oh, gives oh. you that opportunity to fail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so with that, so I say the tech industry opportunity to fail. I get it, and I equate it to two. I, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I get it. Um, and I equate it in the military to the OODA loop, right? And I don't remember what yes. the acronym stands for. It stands for like, it, stands for like, it, it was made by this um, Air Force fighter pilot back mm -hmm. in Korea. And he was, the story is, is that he was, you know, because, because Americans got so many reps, you know, the Americans were just, we were the best. We've always been the best. But he got so many reps that he was able to get inside of the North Korean MiG's decision-making cycle. And he was able to disrupt his decision-making cycle to win. And that was the OODA loop. It's an acronym. It stands for something. I can't remember what it is. But it's basically a decision-making cycle. And it's in the faster you can get inside of your enemy's decision-making cycle, then you control the decision-making cycle. I think, I think I kind of got that close. You, you guys can go Google it and, and figure it out from there. But, but, but I think OODA loop has a piece of this. And then number two, I, and this is why I fundamentally don't agree with it. I think is because, and I found this in my one, one experience in, in is, is culture, right? I think if you're doing that, if you're failing like that, I mean, I get it. You, 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 you know, you fail and you grow and you learn and you adapt and you overcome. And there's a need for that. But but that's half the battle, right? You've got to have a culture that allows that. You've got to have trust. We're back to trust now. You got to have trust in the organization. You got to have, you know, people who are willing to give up of themselves for a bigger issue. Which is really hard, I think, in this civilian world. I mean, it sounds good, but I think it's hard. But you got to have that. If you're going to do that, what you're talking about, fail fast and fail often, and you want to keep your team together, then you got to have a strong culture. And that culture has got to be centered around trust and people who are willing to fail and leaders who are, allow, who are willing to allow people to fail and allow them to pick themselves up, make themselves better, start over again, knowing full well that you're going to waste some resources, your priority of efforts are going to get messed up, and you got to be willing. You got to be authentic. You got to be real with yourself and say, "Look, if we're going to do this, it's more than just putting that on a bumper sticker and saying that that's my that's my mission statement." Because that won't get it. You'll lose. You'll leave a lot of good people behind if you do it that way without you know spending time to develop the culture talking to people, telling people why it's important to do it the way you want to do it, telling people what the expectations are, telling people what's going to happen if they fail and they get picked back up, telling people how you're going to help them succeed when they do fail. I mean, that takes a lot of effort, right? And just, and you're going to leave a lot of good people behind if you just say that and do that without doing all the supporting pieces that are associated with it, in my opinion. That's awesome stuff. Yeah. Elon Musk with his, uh, SpaceX, he's she's gotten a hold of that mentality, and it's working for SpaceX right now. Yeah. Well, that's um, good, right? So, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Tom. 
You're up, Tom. No, I was just going to say, you know, you know, when you get Elon Musk, you know, what a what a high performing company, right? Mm-hmm. So he attracts high performers, and it probably works for things like Google and and Tesla and and those places that naturally attract high performers. But you know, you got to get to that level before you can make a statement like that to attract the people that are going to respond to an environment like that, right? And so that that works for like the one percent. To say that and then do it like that, for the for ninety nine percent, you got to build it. You got to build it with culture, and it takes a long time. You don't get culture overnight. You guys know that, but you get the culture, then you can work it like that. But I, I hope, I would imagine that Elon Musk and others are spending a lot of time communicating to people and telling them, you know, look, this is okay. This is what I expect. We're in this together. We're a team. I trust you. You trust me. We've got lanes, responsibilities. We're going to win together. You know, those sorts of conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, this is a, we've been a great 90 plus minutes. Um, Tom DeJarnett, we'd like to thank you again, Tom. Tom, if anybody out there sees this and they would like to, you know, you, you do consulting, you do, you work with, executives and corporations is um what's an email people can reach you at oh thank you thanks frank um it's just tom the jarnet my name so it's i'll spell it out phonetically uh let me see if i can still remember how to do this tango oscar mike and then there's no period no dash or anything like that it just goes delta echo juliet alpha romeo november echo tango tango echo at yahoo.com that was some marine stuff I pulled out there. That's spot on. That's good for air traffic <laughs> control, too. Spot on. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, well, happy, happy Christmas to both you guys. Merry Christmas Eve, and then happy Merry Christmas if you celebrate. And, um, Tom, we'd love to have you back on again sometime in 2021. Happy New Year to you as well. I'm sure I'll be talking to both of you before then. But, uh, guys, thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for this opportunity. You know, getting to get to talk with you guys. You know, I learned a lot today and I respect you guys so much. You know, getting to Frank, you know how much I respect you and, and the crucibles that you put yourself through and how you handle yourself and how you keep fighting every day. Noah, it's great to meet you. And like Frank was talking about about knowing, you know, somebody with a black belt and knowing what they go through. You being a Marine, and I know, you know, that we're brothers in arms and I appreciate your service as well. Thank you, you too. All right, I'm going to uh, stop it here. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.